The other notable development here is that all catch-up contributions um, would be subject to after-tax Roth treatment. Um, And that's a big revenue raiser and would apply to all catch-up contributions as things stand now. Hi, I'm Brian Anderson, Editor-in-Chief of 401k Specialist, and this is the 401k Specialist Podcast. Our guest today is one of the rising stars and sharpest young minds in the ERISA law community, Jake Eigner is an attorney at the Groom Law Group, one of the most prestigious employee benefit practices in the country, where he specializes in the application of ERISA to financial institutions. Jake's been published or quoted all over the place recently, including in Fast Company, Bloomberg Law, and of course, right here on 401k Specialist, among others. He's got some keen insight on what's happening with the Secure 2.0 Retirement Reform Package, and we also want to get his perspective on the Department of Labor's new ESG rule. Welcome to the 401k Specialist Podcast, Jake. Sure. Thanks a lot, Brian. Uh, Very excited to be here, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. All right. Well, let's jump right in. Everybody's talking about Secure 2.0 right now, and it's looking like we're getting pretty close to getting another landmark retirement package passed on Capitol Hill. Can you give us an overview of where we are in the legislative process? Yes, absolutely. Um, Three bills are currently under consideration. And it's important to note that while there are some overlapping provisions, there are also some provisions that are included in one or two bills, but maybe not in the others. So there's some degree of uncertainty on if Secure 2.0 is passed, what's going to be in it. But that being said, the three bills as currently constituted are first, the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2022, which the House passed back in March. Second, the Rise and Shine Act, which the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee of the Senate advanced in June. And third, the EARN Act, advanced by the Senate Finance Committee in September. So that's where we stand as of early December, but there's still a lot to be seen and a lot that could happen. And Brian, while some folks predicting passage of the bill do have some visibility into the legislative process, Unfortunately, Congress can be a little bit like the Denver Broncos that we both follow this season in that even those in the know whose job it is to to monitor these developments can have their predictions completely confounded from week to week. So it's something that we'll certainly continue to monitor and release content on both through 401k Specialist Magazine and our website, which is groom.com. Great. Great. All right. Uh, How about a closer look at uh, some of the key provisions in the legislation as it currently stands? What are some of the things you think are going to have the biggest impact for retirement savers? Sure. Uh, Well, once again, Brian, I'd highlight that there's some uncertainty as to what exactly will be in the bill if and when it passes, but there are a few highlights that I can go over. Notably, but perhaps not surprisingly, given the apparent popularity of the first SECURE Act, there's some provisions that will likely be broadly popular amongst your readers and listeners. The first is from the Congressman Neal bill in the House. And as you may know, collective investment trusts or CITs are exempt from several registrations that would be required for a product like a mutual fund that you or I as an individual investor could access directly and therefore are only open to certain investors right now through exemptions, which include 401ks, but not 403bs. 
So this first provision would aim to increase access to CITs for 403Bs that cover, for instance, employees of public schools. Many times CITs can be competitive options, and one of the advantages of employees participating or increasing their participation in a workplace retirement plan could be access to some of those sorts of investments. Now, I I don't want to get into uh, needless minutiae here, but in order to make this first change, you'd need both a tax law exemption and a securities law exemption. Unfortunately, the securities law fix was not included in the bills as currently drafted. So a final version will need to add the securities law piece in order to ultimately be effective. But at any rate, the second major change that I would highlight would raise the age for required minimum distributions. Um, You'll likely remember the age was raised from 70 to 72 under the first SECURE Act. And generally, this would allow conscientious retirement savers to continue to grow their nest eggs further into retirement if it's not something they anticipate needing for their day-to-day expenses until later in life. So we anticipate a high level of support for some version of this provision. Now, it's worth noting here that the House version has a phased-in roadmap of 2027 through 2033 for these changes. Uh, being slowly phased in from ages 72 to 75 over that time period, while the Senate version would be more of a cliff model and go straight to age 75 starting in 2033. And the reason for some of this disagreement is that this is a cost provision because it will ultimately result in less tax revenue to the Treasury. So that's why there likely will be a late effective date for the RMD delay to cut down on costs. But it's unclear where exactly they will land on the specifics. Um, The last thing I'll highlight is something that you actually talked about in a great episode previously with Jamie Hopkins from the Carson Group. And I actually just bought his book and am waiting for it to be shipped now. But the bills would increase catch-up contributions that individuals age 50 or older can put in their retirement accounts. Um, There's two versions regarding what ages the increased catch-up applies to, one in the House version and one in the Senate versions. So the eligibility differs between the bills. The House has ages 62 to 64, and the Senate has ages 60 to 63. But both would increase the catch-up amount for some age cohort all the way to $10,000, The other notable development here is that all catch-up contributions um, would be subject to after-tax Roth treatment. Um, And that's a big revenue raiser and would apply to all catch-up contributions as things stand now. So that's certainly not a comprehensive list, but those are the things I would highlight at this point. All right. All right. Thanks, Jake. We're we're certainly going to be keeping an eye on Capitol Hill to see if Secure 2.0 can cross that finish line before the end of the year. Now let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk a little, talk about uh, the new ESG rule that was just published by the Department of Labor. Can you give us an overview and your thoughts on that one? Sure. Um, this has been a big area of focus and of client inquiry for us at Groom. The ESG rule is just the latest in a string of guidance by the Labor Department that dates back to the Clinton administration. I uh, personally sold ESG-themed funds and focused on these issues um, at Georgetown, so I've been focused on these issues for a long, long time, and this guidance is significant, 
although not necessarily transformational, if that makes sense, Brian, and, and I'll go ahead and elaborate on that. Um, I think one of my colleagues said it best in our Groom Law Group webinar when he said it was more akin to the Department of Labor tinkering around the edges rather than making a transformational change. But just to dispel any misconceptions, here's what has stayed the same. Uh, fiduciaries may still not consider non-economically relevant ESG factors in their investment process, except as a tiebreaker. There, there's a couple of things that that have changed, though. First of all, the rule states that fiduciaries may, but are not required to, consider ESG factors when analyzing projected returns on an investment, provided those factors are economically relevant to that investment. The 2020 Trump rule required that fiduciaries make investment decisions solely based on quote-unquote pecuniary factors, and that word pecuniary is no longer in the regulation. And again, this next part may contradict the the popular narrative here, but in explaining these changes, the Labor Department specifically said it did not want to create a mandate for the consideration of these ESG factors. Um, Secondly, and, and this goes hand in hand, when fiduciaries can use the tiebreaker test has changed. The rule reaffirms DOL's longstanding position that fiduciaries are permitted to consider non-economic collateral benefits as a tiebreaker when choosing among otherwise prudent investments. But the new rule does not require investments to be indistinguishable to permit consideration of these collateral benefits, which had been the previous rule. Uh, Now, the planned fiduciary must first determine that competing investment alternatives equally serve the financial interests of the plan in order to use the tiebreaker. Um, And the Labor Department doesn't define in the rule what constitutes a collateral benefit. But it does state that collateral benefits could include stimulating union jobs and investing in the geographic region where participants live and work. Um, This could presumably also include non-economically relevant ESG factors. Uh, And the last thing that may be, in fact, the most interesting and consequential for your audience, Brian, is in regards to qualified default investment alternatives, or QDIAs, which tend to hold the bulk of the assets in qualified defined contribution plans. Um, Because I'm still a wholesaler at heart, this is an issue that is uh, near and dear to me. The Trump rule had effectively a blanket ban on ESG-themed funds functioning as the QDIA. This new rule instead applies the same fiduciary standards to the selection and monitoring of a QDIA as are applied to other designated investment alternatives, including permitting consideration of economically relevant ESG factors, as we've discussed. So there's a lot more to say, but that's sort of it in a nutshell. Hopefully I haven't bored everyone completely to sleep, but uh, for us legal ERISA nerds, it's certainly an exciting set of developments and something we anticipate continuing to see an elevated level of interest in and questions on. And finally, I'll just say that this is likely not the last word on the subject. This is the fifth presidential administration to hold on this issue. And as we corresponded 
about right after the rule came out, Brian, while this new rule is more permissive of plan sponsors, considering ESG factors, there's an ongoing political debate. So it's possible, if not likely, that the next administration may change the rules. Um, Republicans in the House and Senate have also signaled hostility to ESG initiatives generally, as have Republicans at the state level. So certainly something to keep an eye on here. Definitely a to be continued. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you can give us a brief comment or two about any other key issues that are on the radar at Groom Law Group as we head into 2023, beyond what we've covered with the SECURE Act and the ESG rule. What else are you guys keeping an eye on? Sure, absolutely. Well, we're certainly keeping an eye on what I just mentioned, which is usually referred to colloquially as sort of the anti-ESG backlash. And we'll be monitoring that. We'll be monitoring that for our clients and stakeholders, certainly. Um, there's also a variety of class action lawsuits that are pending or ongoing in the ERISA space going into 2023 that will likely continue to shape relative risk for plan sponsors and the investment managers that advise them, which will continue to be an area of interest for us. The last thing I think will be of particular interest for your listeners is potential future activity regarding prohibited transaction exemption 2020-02, which is in direct regards to rollover recommendations and when an advisor acts as an ERISA fiduciary in those situations. Um, George Sepsakos and I plan on continuing to write our column for 401k specialist magazine. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of these issues uh, come up in the coming months. All right. Well, Jacob Eichner from the Groom Law Group, that's just what we're looking for. And thank you so much for joining us today on the 401k Specialist Podcast. Thank you, Brian.